Hello, it's Bridie. Before we get into this week's exciting episode, I thought that I would share our exciting news with you, which is that we got such a great response to the call out for the Facebook group that it now exists, thanks to the moderators, Rose and Emily. What weapons? So we're going to put a link to it in the show notes, but if you type in Cool Story with Bree and Bridie into Facebook, it should come up. It's a closed group because we thought that was the best way to keep discussion lively, but not trolly. We're going to be posting and wanting to see from you articles, books that you're reading, recommendations. We get quite a few in different channels and sent through the DMs. So it would be great to see them all in one place and for other people to be able to see. And of course, chat about the episode is going to be very welcome in there. Anyway, can't wait to be talking to you in there. See ya. Welcome to a very special episode of Cool Story. As you all know, Brie is travelling around Egypt for a month, but we will still have the pleasure of listening to her with me, of course. We are recording a special episode with the leftover questions from our live show at the end of last year, which was just beyond anything either of us had imagined or envisioned. An incredibly special night where part of it was The audience got to write down questions and put them in a vase for us and we pulled them out and answered them on stage very honestly. Very drunkly. (laughs) Very drunkly and very honestly in the part of the show that wasn't recorded. But there were so many great questions left over that we saved them on the night and thought we have to use them eventually. So we've pulled them out and got a selection and we're going to answer some of them on this special episode of the podcast. This is Cool Story. I'm Bridie. And I'm Brie. Let's get started, shall we? We have them all written down on little bits of paper. And before the episode, Brie was like, how are you going to do this? And I'm like, just pull them out randomly. It'll be fine. And Brie was like, no. And so so we've sorted through them and we have a special order that works in a very compelling way. I maintain both approaches could have worked. (laughs) (laughs) But also, like, everyone was so amazing. We have 50 pieces of paper here. You know, people's questions were so, so good. We had to pick... We couldn't answer all 50. No, but I was just going to pick random questions until 30 minutes was up. (laughs) Okay, first question, I will read it out. Regret, question mark. Do you experience it? Anything in 2023 you regret? My guess is Brie does, but Bridie doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I really feel like our incredible audience does know us sometimes or a lot of the time they do get it right a lot for anyone that wasn't at the live show Bridie and I made this like 15 question quiz thinking that they and all of their questions were about things that we had mentioned even really briefly or even really early on in the podcast and we're like oh no one's going to know the answer to all of these and then there were like 60 people still standing at the end and we couldn't give we got, we got beaten in the in the quiz by the audience. Yeah. They knew we ran out of questions. Yeah. Anyway, regret. Do you have a few? The closest thing I have ever come to regretting anything is doing a PhD. I know it's cliche, but I really am happy with where I am at this point in my life and have so much to be grateful for. If To me, regret means if you could go back, would you change it? And I can't say yes, because otherwise I might not be where I am now. But fuck me, the closest I've ever come to actually saying if I had a time machine, I would change my decisions is doing a PhD. 
I've told you to quit so many times. Huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but she won't quit. It's not in her nature. Um, regrets. Not any big life ones for me, which I won't surprise many people. Not because I've behaved perfectly and made correct decisions at all points, but I think that I'm just the type of person who doesn't dwell and doesn't look back that much. Or if I look back, it's in a nostalgic way <laughs> about how great everything was. Not thinking that I would go back and change anything. Although I do experience regret. My main regrets sound quite small, but there are times when I've said things to people that I wish I could take back and I shouldn't have said. And it's mainly to do with me making jokes and crossing the line in some jokes I make. I make inappropriate jokes at times, not all the time. Most of the time I'm incredibly funny. But there are there are some jokes I've made about friends' personal circumstances at different times, and even though I know they're not angry at me, afterwards I have felt shame and thought, I shouldn't, why did I push them that way? I don't need to make a joke out of that situation. I don't need to always make a joke out of everything. That's what I have regrets Actually, about. now you mention that, I just feel sick thinking about like the worst time I ever put my foot in my mouth. If I could take that back, I would, for sure. Just being like, I'll just say it, I was very careless with my language choice, coming from the right place, making an impassioned point, but careless with my language choice about like death by suicide, not really realizing that somebody who was at the table had lost a loved one uh, in that way. And I, yeah, makes me feel sick. Yeah. And it is one of the things life, where I'm just, sure that person knew your intention yeah, and isn't mad at you, but you punish yourself yeah. over it. That's what I punish myself over as well and think. Sometimes I apologize and because that's the other thing, you don't know whether to apologize. Oh, do you bring it up again? Exactly. Like, or just drop it and just learn your lesson personally to yourself and just be better next time. Yep. Yep. I was with somebody when they, um, yeah, we were just with someone else and, and the friend of mine like couldn't understand why this person um, was such a lovely man and had such a lovely wife and like, why didn't you have a kid? Like, why don't why aren't you, aren't you going to have a baby oh together? You're God. so good and saying you're so good with kids. You obviously love kids, which was true. And just finally he was like, well, yeah, we've been trying and we can't. Oh and And it's like, again, coming from the right place, but just I remember talking to that friend afterwards and she was like, I have learned my lesson. Like I will – you know, I'm, I will never, never do, ask never people ask, if they're going yeah. to have kids, whether they want kids, whether they don't have them, unless they want to talk about it. Also, along those lines, never ask about age gaps between siblings. <laughs> I never thought of that. Oh, never, like, well, good. Well, he, never, he, here's my PSA for everyone. I was having a drink with a lovely woman and the age gap between her kids was eight years and it was same parents for all the kids and I made a joke like, oh, man, you were like you were getting your independence back and getting your life back and you went back for another round of nappies? <sighs> to which she responds in a very friendly way, well, we lost four babies in that time. And I just thought, Bridie, why, like, why didn't you think of that? And I learnt my, and she was so gracious but I really learnt my lesson in that moment. Never, ever comment on sibling age gaps or gaps between kids because you don't – just because you got pregnant the first time doesn't mean there's fertility issues after. Mm. So, yes. There are just these pockets of conversation or, or, or things that happen in life where if you've never been through it yourself, you can just be so unintentionally 
like oblivious. And to it's just been human. Yeah. We can't all behave correctly 100% of the time. Oh, Bridie's finding a way to let herself off the hook again. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, when I'm forgiving myself for it, I think no one is correct 100% of the time. To fumble is human. Learn your lesson. Don't do it again. Yeah. And yeah. apologize when needed if not if it's not if it's going to make the situation better not worse. Yes. Okay, let's move on. Uh, question to you specifically, Bridie. Most underrated Taylor Swift song slash album with a little love heart. <laughs> so I think it's it's kind of an oxymoron to say underrated Taylor Swift album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in like in an objective sense. <laughs> well, do they, they all hit number yeah, one. That's like right. I mean, yeah. like, yeah, they they're all very, very successful. Mm. Like, so she hasn't had any commercial duds. Yeah, commercial duds. Like for Lily Allen, I would say No Shame is an incredibly underrated album and should have been much bigger than what it was. Anyway, that's off topic. But for Taylor, so um, underrated album or song. So I guess underrated album, my favourite album is definitely not her most popular album, and that's Evermore. Evermore is her most popular album. No, it's not her most popular album. Have you heard of 1989? (laughs) Have you heard of Red? (laughs) Have you heard of Folklore? (laughs) These are all her most popular albums. But uh, Evermore is not, it doesn't come up in the conversation as much as her other albums, but it genuinely is my favourite of hers. And I think that it, it is her songwriting at its absolute best and most mature and um, telling incredible stories and accessing experiences and articulating them in a way that I just relate to deeply. It's actually, I think that I've, when I've been trying to convince you to like her, it's been Evermore album has been the most where I've sent most of the songs from. As you've been speaking, I remembered that yeah. and that I didn't do that homework. <laughs> <laughs> and But for underrated songs, I think that all of her singles are like some of her most overrated and worst work and that the and that people who are dismissive of her work and think that she's not that amazing songwriter I can understand at times where they're coming from if they've just listened to the really popular and songs the and the type of fan that I am and the reason that I am a fan is because of all the other songs on those albums and songs that aren't necessarily the most referenced or popular or listened to. So heaps of them, almost all of them. (laughs) That tracks with the thing you always say to me that you think she's like the Bob Dylan of our generation, which is about the songwriting and lyricism rather than the like bangers. And the freak, the freak talent, like the raw talent that she, and which he did as well, that has been able to hone because of, Many reasons and many opportunities, but yeah. So, what are my favorite? Uh, like, I'll name some songs for you. This is me trying. From well, you folklore. answered. You you answered the question. Yeah. Do you want me? Okay. <laughs> now. <laughs> I think we uh, yeah. I think we got that one. <laughs> Seven. Uh, it's nice to have a friend. <laughs> okay. Uh, next question is for Bree. <laughs> Uh, when you were writing Eggshell Skull, did you ever consider using a pseudonym? Great question. And if you had, how do you think that would have impacted the release of the work, the work being your first work of fiction? Mm -hmm. This is a really good question. Well, the first part of it is, did I consider using a pseudonym? Um, It was really important to me that I had the blessing of the judge I worked for. Anyone who's read it, I hope, and And I know that most people, because most people have said it to me, that it was clear that I had so much respect and admiration for him. And I think I said something in the acknowledgements that like something along the lines of, you know, if more men 
in the legal profession were like him, books like mine might not need be written. I feel he was always trying to be part of a solu- part of the solution to that sort of systemic, very institutional sexism. And when I had finished the manuscript, he was the first one who really saw it. And I, it makes me nervous or uncomfortable or something to think of what I would have done if he did not give it his blessing. So we met in his chambers, like his office, and 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 there were a couple of things he drew my attention to, like a couple of bits of law that he picked up on. So funny. It was He was actually a very generous proofreader. But We're you know, telling you you got the law wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> which, fair enough, um, you were, what, a clerk and yeah, he's yeah, a senior like, judge. Like, like, yeah. yeah, which is, and I stand by the whole point of that book was that, and I said it explicitly, I was always the youngest and most inexperienced person in the room. Like that's the position from which that book is written. But, you know, he did give it sort of his blessing and I don't know how I would have behaved if that had not happened. Like it was so long ago now and also a very specific time in my life where I was just in the fucking trenches. Like that trial happened in December of 2018, sorry, December of 2017, the trial finally finished and then the book came out in the middle of 2018 and I was just... I can't even, it's like difficult for me to even think clearly back to that time when I was basically just in survival mode for three years in a row. So did you have to hold off on writing the end of the book until six months before publication? Yeah, I had to file the final two chapters in 10 days and deliver on Christmas Eve. Oh my God. I never realised that, that it was such a tight turnaround. Because we got the verdict on the 12th of December and I had, yeah, so like two. Yeah, oh, it mustn't have been Christmas Eve, but felt like it. Must have been like the eve before we left to go to Queensland for Christmas because the trial was so excruciatingly like, you know, kick the can down the road, delayed deliberately um, to try and get me to drop it. So, yeah, that was – I hope you can't say how you would have behaved something differently. It would have taken something extreme to have sort of forced me to use a pseudonym. I don't think – something I can say with confidence is that I would not have chosen that for myself. But what I also think is like the second part of this question is interesting because they're obviously the person who's asked is obviously sort of asking about this thing that, you know, you and I both know to be true about the kind of publishing industry and the kind of media PR marketing infrastructure, which is that it's so much easier to get coverage for memoir and for nonfiction where you put your face and your name to it. And the implication I think of the question is that I wouldn't now have like the big platform I do if I hadn't put my face and name to eggshell skull. But I think a subtle difference I would say is that people still do frequently write fiction, which is very much influenced and shaped by their professional experience. And they still get their face and name on the book, even if it's fiction and they get asked about their professional experiences. And I don't think, yes, there is a difference between full on using a pseudonym and what I probably would have had to have done, which was publish like a version of eggshell skull that was like, quote unquote, fictionalized. But I don't think books really get published fully with pseudonyms anymore. People will publish fiction. And a really good example of that, this sort of phenomenon that I'm describing is Neela Janaki Ramanan, whose book, The Registrar, was a huge sort of commercial success. It was a novel, but it's based on a woman of colour in medicine and that is what Neela is and so she still gets all of the press asking her about you know her life experience and expertise that led to the publication. Yeah well I think what the person was asking I think that part of the implication of the question was like if that eggshell skull hadn't been 
as successful as what it was with your name on it and giving you that platform, would you be publishing the work from a different place or how would it, how would it Yeah, but I've received? also had like a book and a half in between then yeah. and now and like a million different large creative projects and building a name as a freelancer and all kinds of things. I just I That's would, a good point. You would have just had another springboard. Yeah. You would have just found another springboard. Yeah. 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 Okay, Bridie's turn. It begins with a comment and then moves to a question quite quickly and the comment is lovely. Bridie, you're the only person I hear from that doesn't make me shit scared to be a mum. How do you set boundaries with yourself and others to keep having a sick one? Oh, good question. It is a great question because I think that I sometimes can make it look easier than what it is. Ooh, that's an admission. Not Oh, I can make parenting look easier than what it is if you don't have a co-parent who is a 50% parent. Like that is the key to everything. Like I'm not a boundary setter. I'm an extremely porous person. (laughs) There are no boundaries. But so it's not really about boundary setting for me, but the key to it is just having a proper co-parent. Like that's the secret sauce and that's what is lacking in so many people's lives and, you know, and parent and parenting relationships. And, you know, that can absolutely and mostly is the fault of the parent who is doing less. But there's also things that you can do at the beginning to set it up so that you are true co-parents as well. And one of the best bits of advice that I ever got, and I think did set me up for having such a sick one as a mum, I wrote this advice in The Guardian and it got a million hits. I know exactly what you're about yeah. to say. I think about it all the time. Yeah, and yeah. it was – and so many people reference it to me and approach me about it and say that it changed the way they thought, and including parents of kids older than my kids. So this advice was from my mother. Uh, my ba- my eldest had just been born and mum – my mum is a midwife and a nurse, so incredible person to have there at the birth and for the first weeks of your baby's life. Although she didn't stay a week. She was amazing and I wanted her to stay, you know, for a month probably. And she said, no, I'll go home when you don't need me, when you're ready because you need to have time by yourselves as a family with the baby. And so she left after five nights and she was right. Me and Matt needed to be alone with the baby before Matt went back to work after two weeks. Anyway, he was bathing the baby in just the stupidest way that I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like just can't believe how dumb it was, how he was bathing the baby. And I went to correct him. And this was actually when my mum would come back to visit. So I think Hamish was a couple of months old actually at this point. And I went to correct him and mum didn't say anything in front of Matt. But once he wasn't in the room or he'd left the apartment, mum said to me, Bridie, don't become the expert in the baby. She said, don't don't correct him. Don't be the one who knows everything about the baby or the correct way to do everything with the baby because you will carry that into toddlerhood. You will carry that when you are back at work and you will carry that into school and you will be the one who is turned to, is this right, is this not right, what do we do about the kid? And she's right. And she's like, because one, you're making your expert in the baby, but two, you undermine their confidence. Yep. So if you're and if you're the parent, because it's not a gendered thing. There's nothing natural in me about you know how to look after a baby. <laughs> Certainly not me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to be taught everything. <laughs> but it's because I was the one who got all the leave off work, so I spent all the time with the baby, and so that's how you know what to do with the baby. You develop your own ways. Matt didn't get all that because he had to go back to work. So it was natural that I thought I knew the baby better. Also. 
natural that I would know the cues better and like know his routine better because I'm the one that was with him all the time. It's just about time spent. And mum said, you were going to see him do the maddest things that you, you won't believe how that man is changing a nappy or dressing the baby or like doing something. And she's like, walk away. Let it go. Let him do his own way because one, if the baby's surviving, it's fine. And two, if you correct him, you're making yourself the expert, which obviously is detrimental to yourself, but you're also undermining his confidence and you're making them think they don't know what they're doing and they do know what they're doing. It's their baby. And it's incredible advice. And so I got that when Hayes was two months old. I thought it so much over the babyhood, but still sometimes, well, not as much now because he and I both work equal amounts of time. So we're with the kids equal amounts of times. But it really is what set me up to be able to leave the baby with Matt while I went out to feel comfortable enough and for him to feel comfortable enough, which is a big thing after you've given birth. And if you've been breastfeeding, being the source of food for a baby and also just being 24-7 with this helpless being that you're keeping alive, it is anxiety inducing to leave them for the first time. And it's anxiety inducing to be left alone with the baby for the first time. And that's when you're the mum as well. Like, you know, when my mum went home and Matt went back to work and I was alone with the baby, it was terrifying. (laughs) And it's just as bad for the other partner the first time they're alone, but you have to let it happen. And that's what set us up for everything that came after in like proper 50-50 parenting and being comfortable making decisions and looking after the kids. And, Mm. you know, he still puts them to bed in the most insane way (laughs) that I've ever witnessed. And what's funny is he puts them to bed, they come out so much because he's like he's such a lovely soft touch. And when he puts them to bed, they like drag it out and come out and because they'll be like, I'm thirsty. He's like, oh, buddy, I'll get you some water. (laughs) Me, I put them to bed, they don't come out. That's the hard boundary. Yeah, yeah that, that's the boundary. They come out and they're like, I'm thirsty. And I'm like, you're thirsty. I'll give you something to be thirsty about. You had water two hours away. Don't pull that shit with me. Get back in. And so they know it really works. Anyway, sorry, that was quite a long answer to it. But truly, that is the key. That is the beginning of the key to being able to have a sick one. And there are times where I've been made to feel guilty by different people, friends and family for supposedly not being with my boys enough. And you just got to... Let those comments roll off your back while you order that second glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) What you've said is also related to the reason why I, like, really detest that, like, segment or vein of humour of, like, the incompetent man. Like, especially, like, the variations on a theme of, like, the incompetent husband or the incompetent father. And I hear often women... And obviously, like, this whole conversation is very hetero. But I hear often women perpetuating jokes about how incompetent husbands and fathers are. And, like, sometimes, obviously, they just need to vent and let off steam. But often what I think is, like, if you perpetuate this idea that you are the expert in the domestic sphere, either as a wife and, like, caretaker of a household or as a mother and parent of the child, like, you're getting fucked by that stereotype. And you're also playing – you're playing a role in the incompetence as well. (sighs) Like, so not to like make it all women's fault, obviously. No, obviously. But I have an amazing partner, an amazing dad who really, really wanted to be a dad. But I think I just also had the expectation that I wasn't going to do it all myself. Yeah. Like I just would never have occurred to me. Yeah. Anyway. um, Great question. Yeah, great question. I do get variations on that question. A lot. Yeah, the last time you answered it was like, um, your house will be messy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let your it house, go. you got to let it go. you got to let, let go, go of so much stuff. Like, yeah, your house is just going to be a disaster zone. You have to just 
choose what you're going to care about. Okay, this question. I'm a defamation lawyer and want to get out and write a book. Sounds like this chick's job is so interesting. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> she wants to write a book. Uh, what are your tips to motivate yourself, find time and inspiration? Okay, so uh, something that really hits home to me is that incredible books have been written by people from all walks of life. It's not, I don't want to say, you know, anyone can write and it's easy because obviously your socioeconomic and like family obligations, like your, the context of your life makes a huge difference about whether or not you can sort of find time. But what is true is that great literature has been written by mums perched on the edge of their bathtub while their kids are bathing. Great literature has been written by people on commutes to and from their jobs. People have this idea in their head that taking their art seriously and still having all of these other obligations, be they familial, domestic, or sort of career money making, that those are like mutually exclusive. And my biggest piece of advice would be to find a way to do both until you will know in your gut when you are ready to make the leap, either because of what you have established that you can move towards, if it's like a financial security from your art making money, or if it's because the push factors have become sort of intolerable and you would rather live comparatively broke than, you know, rich and in a job you hate. You will know when that breaking point has or that opportunity point has arrived, but you will never get to that point unless you figure out a way to have your art coexist with your work today. And I think the biggest thing you can do is to remove any perceived barriers between you and art, whether that is consuming art that you care about that fuels your inspiration or creating the art that you feel passionate about. You can do it half an hour here, half an hour there. You can do it like in the wee hours or late at night. You can do it on the weekends. You don't need some like retreat in Tuscany for three weeks at a time that's really expensive and that you have to take leave off work to do. If you care about it, you can make it a part of your everyday life. Yes. And I agree with all of that. And I think that what has worked for me, and this is the ultra, ultra practical bit of advice I look at my calendar and I schedule it in. Yes. And it's like half an hour here, an hour there. But yep. I say like on this morning at 8.30, I'm going to sit at the computer for an hour. Um, this night at this time, oh, usually not the night, I'm useless at night, even though that's supposedly a myth. But anyway, it's one that I tell myself, you know, having your best times of the day or whatever, you should just be able to work whenever. But anyway, I digress. So I schedule it in. And so if I have a calendar and I actually, instead of being like, oh, I'll just grab half an hour when I can, You'll never do it if you just think I'm going to grab half an hour when I can. You have to sit down and think about when the time is going to be. Put it in your calendar, sit in front of your computer or sit on like your phone on the commute and think I'm not going to do anything else but sit here. Even if nothing happens, I have to at least sit here for 30 minutes or 40 or whatever you're allocated and usually something will come in that time as well. And that is also how brick by brick you make a book. Yes. And the bit, uh, saying brick by brick you, that you did just then reminded me the best book I have to recommend for a craft if you're sort of starting out. And frankly, I revisit it every few years is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, that is my number one recommendation for craft books. For like, That's the book that got me to write my first one. Yeah, it's the best. Anyone yeah, yeah. who's read it is just like swears by it. It's yeah. unbeatable. Yeah. All right. Finishing on a fun one. What's a cultural trend you think is overrated? This is going to shock no one minimalism. 
Or minimalism, beige and white interiors, marble, all that type of thing, nice soft carpets, you know, the backgrounds that are all different neutral colours, neutral colours in general, overrated cultural trend. And I hope that my, like, preference for, like, British maximalism, like statues of elephants in the living room, like purple (laughs) kitchens, bright blue living rooms, green hallway, I hope it is coming back soon. I would add a, like, potentially nasty, like, topper on your take, which is that I think a lot of people who either can't or don't know how to develop their own taste outsource it to what they say is minimalism and it's just boring. It's not even actual minimalism. It's just Kmart. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. I see so much of that on – and I think Instagram is a huge driver of this as well. I don't think we would have had the big minimalism trend without – Instagram and people wanting clean backgrounds for their selfies and drives me crazy also because like true minimalists are there are so many different like sub variants in that design aesthetic I'll shit on you if you're like Kmart minimalism but if you want to go like brutalist minimalism be my guest no I still hate it pick a fucking taste (laughs) oh just anyway what's yours what's your cultural trend that's overrated (laughs) well now it's minimalism yeah Oh, this is the first time I've ever changed Bree's mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that one really grinds my gears. But yeah, it does. see? Yeah. Uh, we're, oh. we're obviously at a cultural turning point if we're both agreeing on but it. Wasn't there that article you loved where it was particularly about that, like, minimalist beige aesthetic for kids? Yes. Yeah, I remember. Sad beige children. Sad beige children. Yeah, and dressing all your kids. That is a massive trend, particularly in, like, coastal towns. Like, you see it, um, coastal towns along east coast of Australia, but also like California in America, basically anywhere that's near an ocean, they want to put their kid in a beige romper. Oh, my God. And I don't yeah, even I don't have, have kids and I can imagine that a beige romper is like just not practical. And there was a great line I read on this. I forget where it was, but it really stuck with me. And it was someone writing about the trend for sad beige children and they said, kids have terrible taste. Like <laughs> that's part of being a kid. <laughs> that's why they want to wear like the dinosaur bright red shirt with the orange trucks shorts like yeah. they've got terrible taste you've got to let them have their terrible taste which reminds me that was like one of the design principles behind the genius who did um the costumes for emma stone's character in poor things was that because emma stone's character is like a child and going through this like rapid stage of development they like the costume designer made all these costumes that looked like a kid putting a costume together ah, which is oh, and, deranged. and how they would want to yeah yes yeah. i can't wait to see this movie. it's so good Those were like, what, 10% of the amazing questions we got. So thank you to everyone who came to the live show. Uh, And if you didn't get a ticket, I'm sorry. And hopefully we will have some exciting announcements for all listeners in the next couple of months. In the meantime, we will have another very special author episode for you next week. And then Brie will be back from her travels. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. Our producer is Sam Devonport and we record on Gadigal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. You can find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie, where we love to hear from you and also a place where you could ask us questions and get responses as well. Yeah, very true. <laughs> the line is always open. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.